This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. Just because a company hires a sustainability officer or makes a net zero pledge, you know, or has a human rights policy, that is not the same as an outcome, as an action. We need to be evidence-based. We have to be as painfully accurate on non-financial disclosure as we are on financial disclosure. Too often, you just slap a green label on a product or a service. But misrepresentation is misrepresentation. It doesn't matter what the strategy is. With the meteoric rise in net zero commitments and green capital raises by corporations and financial institutions, Investors and consumers are wondering if these statements are credible. Do green labels actually accelerate the flow of capital to companies and projects seeking to improve our climate future? So in this episode, I sit down with Desiree Fixler, former Chief Sustainability Officer at DWS, Tim Mohin, Chief Sustainability Officer at Persephone, and Eric Becker, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development at Urgenet, which recently merged with Arcadia, at the Greenfin 2022 conference in New York City to discuss why green financial products and labels are ineffective and why actually counting carbon levels the playing field for investors and consumers alike. So live from New York, it's Climate Positive. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com. Do green labels actually accelerate the flow of capital to companies and projects seeking to improve our climate future? This session will dive into why specific green financial products and labels are perhaps ineffective and why actually counting carbon levels the playing field for investors and consumers alike. So first, I'd like to ask each of our esteemed panelists to introduce themselves, telling us a little bit about their current role and company organization and their career background. Eric, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Chad, for having me. It's great to be here. My name's Eric Becker. My career has been involved in building technology companies. For the last nine years, I've been involved with a company called Urgenet. We recently, in the last two months, actually merged it with Arcadia Power. But our innovation is a technology platform that aggregates utility data from 9,000 different utilities in 52 countries around the world, electric, gas, waste, and water providers. And we aggregate this information and sell it to large enterprise customers, companies like Cox, and Dow Chemical, and Honda, and they use this information to make their facilities more energy efficient. They use this data to publish sustainability reports and for various other purposes. And I should also say that a number of the vendors that are at this conference, like Persephone and others, are partners of ours. So excited to be here. Thanks very much. Desiree? Hi there. So I'm Desiree Fixler. Um, there's been some recent press reports that I blew the whistle while I was Chief Sustainability Officer at Deutsche Bank's asset manager, DWS. And, you know, that is very much a story about corporate governance failure. So, you know, what had happened is I felt there was a contradiction to what the company was publicly stating and to what was internally stated and known. And spoke up about that, ultimately got fired, came out in the press, and global regulators decided to investigate uh, it's culminated with um, a 50-person strong police raid at Deutsche Bank's headquarters and the CEO stepping down, and also the asset manager, which is a publicly listed company, 
taking a 25% hit on its market cap. It's a phenomenal story, but again, you know, pulling it back, it is about misrepresentation, about corporate governance failure, what I saw as an attempt to exploit ESG. Um, my background, uh, aside from whistleblowing, um, has been in... <laughs> Uh, has is you know has been in in the asset management industry and investment banking and I previously worked at Merrill Lynch Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan and lived through the great financial crisis I was uh, a CDO structure and there are remarkable parallels to again the you know the bubble if you will you know the build up to to that crisis and and really where I think we are right now in ESG and um, one, you know, publication, I think it was the FT, said, you know, question whether or not I, I popped the green bubble. But I think we're all here because we know we need to get back on track. We need to, to evolve and we need to have these, these more sensitive conversations about the impact that we're having in this market. Thanks, Desiree. Tim? Uh, remind me never to go after Desiree on the introductions. I can never top that. That's amazing. I want to hear more. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Tim Moen. Um, I've been around the sustainability business a very, very long time. Breaks down with 10 years in government, 20 years in the private sector, big tech, Intel, Apple, AMD. Uh, last four years, I was CEO of the Global Reporting Initiative, which sets sustainability reporting standards used by most companies in the voluntary market. Uh, now I'm Chief Sustainability Officer for Persephone, uh, working with Urgenet and working with many of you to basically provide enterprise-level carbon accounting that can be audited, assured, and used for not only compliance, but to really manage the carbon risks throughout an enterprise or financial services institution. Thanks, Tim. And I'm Chad Reed. I lead strategic initiatives and ESG for Hannon Armstrong. We're a climate-positive alternative asset manager focused only on projects and real assets that improve our climate future. We have about $9 billion of assets under management in various asset classes, including wind, solar, storage, building efficiency, and other sustainable infrastructure assets. So let's jump in. Nowadays, it seems like everybody wants to be green, or at least net zero. On the investor side, there are over 200 asset managers with approximately $60 trillion in assets under management that have committed to achieve net zero alignment of their portfolios by 2050 or sooner. On the corporate side, there are more than 5,000 businesses that have pledged to cut their greenhouse gas pollution to zero by 2050 or reach net zero by canceling out emissions with carbon offsets or, or other projects. And they include some of the biggest companies across a lot of sectors, Apple, Zurich, Procter & Gamble, General Motors, etc. So the breadth and depth of the investors and companies setting these targets is impressive, and the intentions, if genuine, are certainly laudable. But serious questions have been raised as to the credibility and the achievability of many of these targets. So Desiree, I want to start with you. You mentioned your role as head of sustainability um, at DWS previously and on um, the whistleblowing that you were able to achieve there. Can you tell us a little bit about what we mean by greenwashing in this context and, and then a little bit about your experience at WS and how that plays into this? Sure. So to begin with, I think, you know, during COVID, we had an incredible acceleration, right, in the ESG space. And it's what folks wanted to hear, right? It pulls at the heartstrings. And it seemed like every corporate executive was making a net zero pledge or stating that diversity was the number one priority for the firm. 
And where we are today, fast forward kind of two years later, and all of the regulatory actions and enforcement actions that have happened, right? It's the wake-up call that we need to be evidence-based. We have to be as painfully accurate on non-financial disclosure as we are on financial disclosure. And too often, we get confused between inputs, initiatives, and outcomes, right? So just because a company hires a sustainability officer or makes a net zero pledge, you know, or has a human rights policy, that is not the same as an outcome, as an action, right? And I think that's where greenwashing comes out too often, right? You just slap a green label on a product or a service, right? You know, you say that you're conducting, you know, your risk assessment system investment process integrates ESG criteria, right? But we don't have enough disclosure and greenwashing kicks in, right? When we're just thinking that there are no rules and guidelines, there's no standard. I I hear that all the time. Well, there's no standard definition of ESG, but like, you know, misrepresentation is misrepresentation. It doesn't matter what the strategy is. This could be crypto, uh, you know, fixed income. It just so happens is, you, you know, we need to have that same rigor in company and product and, and service disclosure as we do on, on the regular way in traditional, you know, how we traditionally report. And the greenwashing will come up, you know, when, you know, again, you haven't backed up your products, your services with that evidence and, and, and data. And too often we're, we've seen here that companies were just relying on it as a fundraising machine and a, a PR exercise. And we need to, to dial back that sort of all the rhetoric and propaganda and, and go back to just, you know, tracking as much data as we can and just being as transparent as we can. You know, if if the product has a transition strategy, it's not good enough just to say, we asked the asset manager, we're engaging with, with our corporations, we've had 2,000 meetings. That's great. What have you achieved? Right? So, and, and that's like, you know, how many AGM motions have you put out there in support of climate? What's your voting record like? Right? What are your lobbying activities like? Are, is the firm fully aligned? Does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? So the company itself has to be authentic about, you know, its statements, its actions. And I, I think it's all about data and, and being evidence-based. Thanks. And so what exactly happened at DWS? Can you give us, can you talk a little bit about that? Or do you have an NDA in place where you can? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is. And let me, let me also make this statement that there are a lot of good people at DWS and at Deutsche Bank, right? This was just what I had seen as a top management issue. You know, for me, my eyes were open. I was brought into a firm that had some problems and and has had a couple of decades of problems. And I really thought that I was there to help, you know, solve the issues and that, you know, I'm generally known to be pretty outspoken. They knew what they were getting. And I had worked at Deutsche Bank, you know, back in the day. And right. So this was about misrepresentation. Um, and I, I was one of the editors on the annual report, a legal document um, that was a combined report of financial disclosure and non-financial disclosure. And I was in charge of editing everything that went out on sustainability. And, you know, the numbers that were being produced that the majority of the assets under management were aligned with an ESG strategy was just untrue. And and to begin with, th- we had no tracking system. It's, it's, how could you report out on a number when there's no internal tracking system or measurement system. 
And there were other exaggerations on, you know, the, the ESG risk assessment system was severely flawed. That was one of the first things that came out. I don't know if folks are familiar with the Wirecard scandal, but, you know, this company that, you know, its CEO was arrested and they had a $2 billion, you know, hole and the company filed insolvency, um, went insolvent. I mean, this company at this time was given the second highest ESG rating, citing its strong corporate governance and business ethics. And like, the CEO's in jail. Right. And as right, so there there are flaws here. And it wasn't that I was that astute. It was just they were glaring issues. And it, it wasn't a people's issue. It was that I think, you know, the senior management thought they could take a shortcut here that in ESG you can just say it. You just say you're a leader in ESG and the sell side equity analysts start talking that you're an ESG leader, right? You have your A plus and strategy and governance from the PRI. You've got all your these, you know, great you know, ESG credentials. You know, suddenly you're attracting all these great ESG flows and, you know, because of the sell side, you know, analysts saying like, you know, this company is well positioned to benefit from ESG investing boom, your share price starts soaring and it becomes self-fulfilling and you don't have to do it. You could just say it. Self, like, it's all about like we have, we live in this market on self-reporting, right? You know, a lot of the ESG assessors don't kick the tires. They just take the company statement face value. I was internal and I knew that, you know, the public statements and the numbers that were being, you know, put out, it was not the case. The majority of the assets under management did not comply with an ESG strategy. And, you know, for me, this was governance and, right, you know, I'm FINRA trained, right? This was just exaggeration, misstatements. And so I redlined the annual report and corrected everything and, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was fired and the annual report went out with all the misstatements. So this is very much about misrep and misselling the company's reporting of ESG, assets under management, and also its ESG overall capabilities and profile. Well, thank you for your courage and for sharing your story. And, and to not pick on just DWS, a number of banks and asset managers are now under investigation by U.S. or European authorities for similar sorts of misrepresentations. So, Tim, I'd like to bring in you now. Before your current role at Persephone, you were the chief executive at the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI, the world's largest sustainability reporting standard. And as you well know, the NGO and private sector proactive efforts to push investors and companies to make genuine and meaningful climate pledges to drive real emissions reductions is in part driven by these independent climate and ESG standard-setting agencies and organizations. So in addition to GRI, there's a number of them out there, SASB, TCFD, the newly formed ISSB, and there are a number of independent raters like MSCI and Sustainalytics and, and increasingly the big credit agencies like Moody's, S&P, and Fitch are involved in ESG ratings. So tell us a little bit about the role of these organizations in identifying and then combating greenwashing. Sure, um, I'd love to, but before we geek out on the alphabet soup, I uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your courage. I mean, we need more people that are willing to stand up and pay the consequences, frankly, uh, to, to really get at this issue in a serious way. So thank you. What, what a great story. But, you know, let me let me answer your question this way. Um, I, I've been around this for a very long time. 
And I, I think we're actually heading into an accountability crisis because when I started my career, we didn't have the word sustainability. Uh, if you wanted to work on the environment, you chose government or NGO. Corporations were not to be trusted. Uh, they were to be regulated. Uh, and somewhere along the way, corporations moved faster than governments on meeting and exceeding regulatory requirements. And the whole corporate sustainability movement was born. Corporate social responsibility, you probably all remember that, right? And I transitioned into that. That was a big part of my career. And it's wonderful when companies do something that they're not told to do. It's kind of a, a man bites dog story, right? We're going to we're going to do something against our better interests because it's good for people on the planet. But if you really step back from that, it's become somewhat of a reputational exercise. Okay, A lot of companies do this. And I'm not saying they're not good things. Companies do good things. And I've seen that firsthand. But because it is a reputational exercise primarily, it's not taken that seriously. And so we had a statistic the other day that 92% of the S&P 500 publish sustainability reports. The vast majority of those reports are unaudited, unassured, and frankly, I think, living on borrowed time. Because behind the curtain, uh, regardless of the alphabet soup of standards, the, the accounting is done on spreadsheets by overworked, underpaid people. And often the reporting is done late, often six months late after the close of the fiscal year. And it's very spotty, right? So that's why we're seeing this big influx of standards and regulations is to clean that all up. So overall, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I'm actually somewhat optimistic because I've worked in this field for so long and it's about time. I mean, it's about time that we took this seriously, held companies and financial institutions to account for their statements made. And if they're using standards, great, but show your work. Show us how you got to those numbers. Otherwise, it's, it's just uh, all, you know, smoke and mirrors. You know, Tim, one challenge in conducting these assessments on the environmental side is that there's often a conflation between fighting climate risks and fighting climate change. And Bloomberg Business Week recently published an excellent expose pointing out that MSCI's climate score measures exposure to climate risk but not at all the impact of the business operations and or investments to contributing to or mitigating climate change. So how can we encourage this alphabet soup of standard setters and rating agencies to properly assess both of these, especially the latter? I think what's at the core of your example, and it's a very good one, is this notion of materiality. And so the, the definition used in, in the financial sector is what's material to an investor. What are the risks and opportunities that a reasonable investor would want to know? But that's very myopic, right? It's really about what's good or bad for the company. What the sustainability side has always had is a, a, a broader view. Not only what, what is good or bad for the company, but what's the company doing to the world around it? This is called double materiality. This is actually turning into kind of a crisis right now, because if you follow this area closely, you will have seen that last week the European Union came up with something called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD. The CSRD, for those of you who spend a lot of time on this stuff, is based on double materiality. So all of a sudden you have the world's largest trading block affecting 50,000 companies. You don't even have to be domiciled there. You just have to have business there. 
that are saying, look, you, it's not good enough just to report on what matters to you. We need you to report on what matters to all of us. And that's huge. Europe's the world's largest trading bloc. That's huge. At the same time, what's happening in the international level is you're seeing single materiality really take off. You know, the ISSB, we've talked about that all day, the International Sustainability Standards Board. It's solely based on what a reasonable investor would want to know. So we're essentially heading into this two-pillar system where you're going to have double materiality and single materiality. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But what I do know is that those two things should not be a zero-sum game. They should not be facing off one against the other. If you really think about it, single materiality is a subset of double materiality. So if your company is reporting on these matters, climate being the first one people think about, the reporting of what is financially material to your company should be identical to what is required in a double materiality setting. It's only that additional stuff that matters to people on the planet that should be added on. Exactly. Eric, I want to bring you into the conversation now. What role do private companies like Urgenet, recently acquired by Arcadia, have in ensuring that investor and corporate emissions are properly measured and reported? Yeah, that's a good question. I did want to start off because I just just comment on, on mostly what Desiree said. I think as I step back and I look, it's been the last couple of years, there have been tremendous gains in the whole ESG movement. And perhaps one of the biggest risks that the movement faces is stuff that it can control itself, greenwashing and other things. There are a lot of people who probably want to, you know, aren't supportive of the ESG movement. They look for an opportunity to take this initiative down. And so I think there's a really important moment for the industry. And what we're trying to do to help businesses is help them with real data that's substantiated with source documents and it's irrefutable. And the other thing I would say, you talk about double materiality. When we work with enterprise customers, they're focused on the double green, which is they want to be sustainable. But when you reduce your carbon emissions, you're reducing your consumption of electricity and gas, and you're also saving money in the bottom line. So we're very focused on providing our customers with real data that they can use not only to save money, but also publish sustainability reports that are irrefutable. Tim, what about Persephone and its role in this effort? Can you specifically address how Persephone is working with companies and investors to properly report, especially finance, scope three, category 15 emissions? I said I wasn't going to geek out, but uh, we'll go for it anyway. It ties into what I was talking about before. In all the years I worked at, you know, even those big progressive companies, Intel, Apple, AMD, you know, we had spreadsheets uh, running around trying to figure out what all of our emissions were in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. This is just not going to cut it. It won't cut it when it comes to financial statements that have to be filed on time. They have to be audited and assured. So essentially what we do is we've automated the entire process. When you really think about carbon, it's a data problem, right? So there's nobody chasing around behind your car with a monitor or behind your plane with a monitor to figure out what the GHG emissions are. It's, it's a calculation, right? So you figure out how far you went, what business class or regular class, and then you do a calculation based on emission factors. So we basically automated that whole process across all corporate transactions. So it's an ERP, an enterprise resource platform for carbon. And we sit alongside the other ERPs like SAP or Oracle, and all the transaction data they create flows through our system. So we've basically encoded the whole 1,800 pages of the greenhouse gas protocol. So all the uh, rules, the accounting rules, the calculation formulas, and we have over 107,000 emission factors are just automated. So all we have to do is take the data in 
and you get a real-time scope one, scope two, and scope three carbon footprint. Excellent. And we've actually had discussions with Persephone on how we could potentially work together on what are called scope four emissions, what I know some people in the audience are interested in, which are the avoided emissions associated with especially investments or, or financed assets. And the problem here is that the GHG protocol doesn't actually have a standard for scope four emissions, but we at Hannah Armstrong have a metric called carbon count that we've had since uh, we became a public company in 2013. And there, all of our investments are almost all of our investments in the US. So we, we take a look at the EPA emission factors, and then we take a look at the megawatt hours of energy produced, if it's a renewable energy asset, or megawatt hours of energy saved, if it's an energy efficiency asset. And then we divide that product by the total capital cost of the project. And that gets us a metric called carbon count, which measures the metric tons of CO2 avoided per $1,000 invested. And we've been working to even improve this metric going forward with a concept known as locational marginal emissions. So we have a partnership with a company called Resurity, which has locational marginal emissions associated with two different independent service operators or ISOs, which are basically just small little grids that make up the U.S. grid. And this uh, allows us to look at avoided emissions, uh, not on an average annual basis, but on a very granular hourly basis based on where the project is specifically located. Um, and so we're helping to promote this idea of carbon count of reporting on and measuring scope four or avoided finance emissions as a result of investments, because we think that it will help drive capital to the types of projects and assets that need that capital. So that's one solution that we're helping develop, but I, I want to talk about how public policy can help to combat greenwashing as well. So Desiree, as you well know, the SEC has released a few proposed rules, one on naming ESG or climate or green investments, another on uh, how do you properly report your emissions. Could you tell us a little about these proposed rules and how effective you think they can or will be? Sure. Um, I think it's fantastic. So just to take a step back, Europe and the U.S. differ a great deal when it comes to ESG regulation. So the, you know, from Europe's perspective, the EU issued, I think, like 180 new rules back in 2018, which are gradually being implemented. And it's based on mobilizing private capital into sustainable investments. So it's about the Green Deal, right? And that's why Europe is very focused on certainly double materiality and its taxonomy and going back and forth. Is nuclear good or bad? Is it green? And the U.S. approach is very, very different. The U.S. is very much, you know, about investor protection, right? Ensuring that there's clear risk, dis you know, disclosure. Investors know what they're buying, what they're investing in. And secondly, ensuring that there is a functioning financial market. So, you know, I take the view that, you know, when it comes to corporate disclosure, we need standards. I think what the ISSB is doing is fantastic and these initiatives on both naming and risk disclosure and, and description disclosure, right? What is, there's all this ESG jar, jargon, what does it mean? Um, so I think that that is a fix for greenwashing, but that's not everything, right? What the SEC also does very well that Europe doesn't do all that well is enforcement, right? One of the best things, like it's important to regulate the market, 
but also tell the market that the regulator is watching and will pounce. I mean, having lived through the great financial crisis, like nothing raised the bar better than like hearing about like, you know, a firm that got busted or someone going to jail and, you know, the Jesse Litvak case in 2014. And so it just, you know, everyone in the markets to just raise the, the, the bar on, you know, better practice. And, and I think what the SEC has done with its two enforcement actions and now the German federal police, I think that those enforcement actions will go further at deterring and, and mitigating greenwashing than the 180, you know, new rules by the European Union and all of like going into that, that detail because it's at a very high level. It's that, again, we have to change the mindset to go and become evidence-based and data-based. So I'm all for the SEC approach to clear product descriptions and, you know, the naming rule. Um, because all too often we see ESG in a name or climate action or this one I love, you know, it's um, aligned with the sustainable development goals, right? SDG in there. And then, you know, when you lift up the hood and you look in, it's, you know, investments in like Apple, Microsoft, right? Great companies and that might be a high performance portfolio, but is that really SDG aligned? And, you know, we need to, again, be clear with the names and and with what we mean by ESG integration and, and so forth. And I think the U.S. approach is a great one. Can I just jump in on that? Because I, I think what Desiree is saying is so important. Regulation is a lagging indicator, right? Something has to happen before regulators wake up to the fact that, oh my gosh, we should do something. It's rarely proactive. And, and your point about the DWS case is, is so well taken because I think the whole industry has woken up to the fact that these claims have to be real. And regulators are now just now sort of following up on that. On, on a personal level, you know, I worked at Apple when Apple was on the front page of the New York Times and every other paper for alleged poor conditions and actually more than alleged in their in their supply chain. And I became the guy in charge of that. Fast forward, Apple's a leader in that space and changed the entire industry. Right. So I think that, you know, your point is extremely well taken. It's, it's kind of that shot across the bow that leads to this change. One concern I have is uh, whether the courts, the federal courts will uphold the regulations that this SEC are, are putting out now. We're likely to get a ruling tomorrow on a, the authority of the EPA to regulate uh, certain greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And so I guess we'll see how far the Supreme Court is willing to go on that issue, given they've been very active recently. Um, Tim, Desiree did mention the, some of the weaknesses of the European regulatory regime. Can you defend it? Can you give us any sort of hope that the European leadership, uh, whether it's through the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive or the EU taxonomy, can provide some value here in that ecosystem? You know, it's it's necessary but not sufficient. I think, you know, to be super candid, some, some of the European style is, is, is regulatory overreach. You know, you see a, a cycle of regulation, compliance, regulation, compliance, and nothing really changes beyond that. I think you really have to have somebody on the other end of the transaction, and in this case, that's investors that can actually move the needle, right? So if we're, if we're saying that transparency leads to change, great. You know, just reporting your information to a financial regulator leads to no change whatsoever. What leads to change is that it, that information is used by investors to align capital to sustainable business practices. And if that doesn't happen, then what are we doing? We're just adding compliance costs. And so 
that's why I said by overreach. I mean, there's just so many different aspects from CSRD to SFDR to the taxonomy to the EFRAG. I mean, we could keep going, right? But eventually, at some point, you know, there has to be a transaction. Somebody provides the information, somebody uses the information, and a change happens. And that's what I'm kind of looking for. Eric, what new opportunities do these proposed regulations have for companies like yours? And how does your company think these regulations should be shaped going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely raises the bar on what they have to do. And that, and, and foundational to all this is the data that we're focused on. And so, you know, we are really trying to provide corporates and innovators in the space with a data platform that kind of supports everything they're trying to do to accelerate this movement towards the new energy economy. Um, when we engage with enterprises, we engage with them at different points in their journey. There are some, Tim talks about people with spreadsheets. So uh, for them, again, it all starts with getting the data. They may be using spreadsheets at the outset, but we'll engage with them to you know, build a foundational data layer that they can use. We engage with others that are much more sophisticated and further along in their journey where they're actually capturing data, but they might be doing it in, with manual processes. And we bring automation to that. But we view our role to accelerate this change to the new energy economy as providing you know, really the foundational clean tech platform that, to enable all that. Excellent. Well, I also want to talk about public policy as it relates to the elected branches of government and the role of corporations in engaging with them. So one of our favorite public intellectuals, Tariq Fancy, who's the former CIO for sustainable investing at BlackRock, has, has written extensively on this topic. And he notes that BlackRock, Disney, Boeing, Netflix, four very large U.S. major corporations, all eagerly post all kinds of information on their great CSR work and their ESG profiles. And yet all four have fought against shareholder resolutions, asking them to publicly disclose their political spending, which, after the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, makes it effectively secret and laymanless. So one thing I want to bring up is what role do corporations have? Should they be disclosing their political engagement, lobbying, spending? And how would that potentially impact the broader ecosystem of our elected branches when it comes to these sorts of rules and regulations. So I will start with you, Tim. Wow, we're wading into the deep water now here. <laughs> uh, you know, having worked in companies for a very long time, it's, it's super difficult to hold them accountable to this standard because in many cases, the contributions they're making are to either a member of Congress or an association that supports them on a broad range of issues and, you know, one of those issues runs counter to the policies you're talking about. And so it creates a dilemma within the company like, well, do we pull back the entire money because of this one thing or do we go forward? And that's where you end up with these inconsistencies, which are gleefully pointed out by just about everybody. So it's a tough one. I think that one is, is super tough for companies to, to step up to. However, I'm going to just say that I think companies are now... I mean, we've we've called it uh, brands taking stands, right? Um, are, are now sort of taking on the role of government, you know, with this uh, Supreme Court that you've mentioned before, which is, uh, uh, let's say, moving beyond the known barriers of a Supreme Court. The Roe versus Wade decision just from last week has caused corporation after corporation to say that they're going to fund employee travel to get necessary services now, including, I'm very proud to say, Persephone. That's going to continue to happen as, as governments take these steps. And I think companies are now being held to a higher standard, and it's probably going to start to impact their political giving as well because it's kind of the last thing. But again, very difficult for companies to, to step up to that one. Desiree, Eric, any 
Thoughts on that? I, I mean, I agree with what you said. I, I, the only thing I would add is that, you know, if a company is wading into an issue, then you have to go all the way and disclose, right? So again, it comes down to like, if you're saying something, if you're involved in an activity, if you're generating, if you're making money off something, then, you know, make sure that you're aligned, right? Um, You're inviting that disclosure. That's the only thing I would add. Yeah, I, I guess I don't have too much to add. It is a complicated question. I would just say, if you want to drive behavior, it's all about incentives. And there can be the carrot and the stick. And so I think that when you think about that and try to answer these questions, I don't have a great answer to it, but I would say think about the incentives and focus on those and you'll drive the kind of behavior you're looking for. Hard to disagree with that. I also want to touch on the backlash to ESG. There's been a number of statements made recently, one by Elon Musk that that questioned the value of ESG writ large because Tesla was kicked out of the S&P ESG index while I believe ExxonMobil remains. And then on the potentially other side of the spectrum, a number of states, Ceres does a great job collecting this information, are proposing legislation that would prevent their state pension funds and other firms within their domiciles to consider ESG uh, factors when making investments. So where does this end? Where is this going? We're seeing a backlash to ESG in part because of the SEC's actions, I believe, and in part because of an ideological view that companies should only focus on exclusively uh, the bottom line. Where do you see this going? Tim, I'll start with you. Well, it kind of comes down to what my fellow panelists, Eric and Desiree, have been saying. It comes down to data accountability and transparency, right? So uh, these things that we're talking about, the, the 34 topics under ESG, can be measured, can be disclosed, and, and frankly need to be. You know, and so right now, like any movement, it's a little messy, right? There's a lot of chaos at the beginning of any movement. But I always like to make the comparison ESG to the famous Hemingway quote about bankruptcy. It was a very gradual process, and then it happened all of a sudden. Uh, This is what's happening in ESG. I've been in this field for so long, and all of a sudden, it's very, very important. And this is why I said it's an accountability crisis, because these Let's just say, you know, behind the curtain kind of, you know, kludgy systems that we have are being exposed for what they are. And that's going to take a little while to shake out. Now, there's some real risk, okay, especially in the analytics space that you mentioned before. I think about, you know, the the mortgage meltdown when some of the firms that went bankrupt were, you know, rated AAA just a few weeks before, right? And you have a situation developing in the ratings and ranking space where, because of the lack of transparency, because of the lack of rigor in the information, you're seeing all kinds of also somewhat false ratings and rankings on companies' ESG statements. This must be solved. Uh, IOSCO, the, the International Securities Regulators Association, basically have said that's their next target for regulation. So it's a little bit of a mess right now, but I do think it's getting better. I absolutely agree. I mean, this market was so one-sided and, you know, everyone was taking selfies in Glasgow COP26 and how wonderful. And GFANS, the statement, you know, we've mobilized $130 trillion or euros, right, in support of, you know, climate action. And emissions are going up, right? We needed to mark ourselves to market. And I think these recent, the criticisms 
the regulatory actions, proposals, um, the enforcement actions. I think that was that's what we needed to have more honest conversations. Secondly, while we've been successful in mobilizing trillions of dollars right into this ESG space, how have we moved the needle? Is this impactful money? Car emissions are going up. So whatever we're doing, we're not moving in the right direction. So I, I think this, this point in time, this accountability crisis, it's healthy, right? That to have authentic, sensitive conversations and you know, address the structural weaknesses here to do better. Yeah, it is sort of a seminal moment in this sort of, it's a messy point in the ESG movement. Um, and it's an important time for all of us in industry to step up and encourage the type of future that, that Tim's alluding to. Absolutely. So with that, I do want to open it up to audience questions. If you have a question, feel free to stand up and we'll go from there. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for such a robust conversation. Um, my name is Monique. I'm an emerging leader and a graduate student at Brandeis University. Um, so Eric had mentioned that markets are motivated by incentives. Um, what incentives do you think are necessary to increase the adoption of a double materiality framework? Do you think that comes solely from regulation or do you think there are other points of leverage? You know, that's a tough one because ultimately it is going to be about regulation because the definition of double materiality is impacts that go beyond the company's financial well-being. And as you know, public companies are held accountable by their shareholders every 90 days, and it makes it really tough for them to think about anything else. And so regulation is kind of required in that space. But I wouldn't stop there. As a former regulator, I think that sometimes we put too much stock and faith into just disclosure. Uh, I said it before, but unless there's action that follows that disclosure, it's a waste of time. You know, data is only useful if it's used. Uh, and sometimes I feel like we're going the long way, especially with climate change. We know where it comes from. Just regulate it. You know, go after methane, go after power plants, you know, and this EPA thing that was mentioned by Chad has me staying up at night. So truly believe that it's it's a part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I do think that you're going to need regulation to continue the, the fire under double materiality. Hi, this is Corey Weiss from SVB. Thanks for this great conversation. And maybe I have a little bit of a boring buzzkill kind of question, but the accountability crisis is real. The data gaps are real. Um, and for us to report against the SEC proposal at the scale that we need, we're going to need to rely on software platforms to, to really do this at scale. Um, can you talk to us about the auditability of the software programs of Persephone's? I mean, how can we sort of unpack the methodologies and the data that's necessary to ensure that scope one and two data that's being reported, let alone scope three, is reliable? Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, the, the the key to the accountability crisis is auditability. I think the big four are, gosh, if any of you have any ESG experience and can fog a mirror, you can get a job right now at a big four company. They're staffing up, right? They see what's coming. Uh, and, and so it's essential to everything we do. I think Desiree started the conversation off that way, and thank you for doing that. I, 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 in terms of what the role of software, it's just to enable that process, right? So, um, you know, at Persephone, we provide a ledger. So every single transaction that had, you know, the emission formula, the emission factor, I should say, plus the, the uh, accounting formula applied is, is reported in a, in a ledger 
that can be then followed back to the source of the information with a name and a timestamp. So it completely assurable, audible, all the way through and completely transparent. And then I'll, I'll just add on sort of, again, our role, and this is all on the data piece of it. And so, you know, we try to enable these software platforms with data that comes direct from the source. It's electronic. We provide the source documents around this for auditability. And so we see that as our role, providing the data that all these types of software platforms need to do the types of things that you're describing. And so I think we're almost at time. So from each of our panelists, what is one final takeaway uh, on greenwashing, on regulations that you would want every member of our audience to remember going forward? I'll start with you, Tim. Persist. Never quit. I've been in this field for a long time. We've seen the ups and downs. Like I said, it's never been more dynamic than it is now. There's some big headwinds, dark clouds on the horizon, keep me up at night. But, you know, 35 years later, I'm still here. Persist. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I would say that, you know, again, look at the macro, you know, economic outlook is not very pretty. And it comes up, I've been asked, you know, quite a lot, are we going to see outflows in ESG, whether it's performance related or companies no longer invest because of the inflation issue and cost issue? And I agree that, look, we're going to move into a very challenging time because ESG, there's the accountability crisis. It's messy. You know, we've got macroeconomic severe headwinds coming at us, um, but it's necessary. And I'm very encouraged with the reporting standards. I absolutely think that is going to happen. And there's, you know, a generation shift and, you know, younger generations are very values aligned. And it's it's a whole new, you know, what, what we learned with, unfortunately, energy security is that while short term there might be more fossil fuel investments, long term we can't be dependent on fossil fuel autocracies, right? So we have to do this also for energy security and it's a whole new economy that, you know, wonderful investment opportunities and hiring opportunities. So I, I am, I'm encouraged with the science, but, but we're, we're heading for some choppy waters here. I guess the last thing I'll add on to this, just sitting here at the conference for the last uh, day, is that we talk a lot about how hard it is and all the challenges. Everyone sort of lives and breathes this. Everyone in this room, I think, is involved in that. Um, but I guess what I'd say is it, it's worth it. Like climate change, as we all know, is real. It's existential, so as challenging as this is, and all of us are involved in it, it's worth it. And the final comment I'll make is that I walk away today being uh, optimistic. I've met with a lot of really bright, really motivated people today, and we're all involved in making all this happen. And so I walk away from having met with many of you very optimistic about what we can do together. That is the perfect note to end on. Please join me in thanking our panelists today. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify, which really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosipod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.